This Talking Flutes podcast is kindly sponsored by Trevor James Flutes, making life sound beautiful. You can show them some flute love by following them on Instagram at TJ Flutes, Trevor James Flutes on Facebook, and at trevorjamesflutes.com. Hello and welcome to Talking Flutes Extra with me, Jean-Paul Wright. In this fourth week of five, where we are looking back through our podcast archive, three pods have proved to be very popular with our listeners. We start with the Paul Edmund Davis, a very special musician, flute player, soloist, author, teacher, educator, wine and champagne connoisseur and seriously nice guy. So here's an excerpt from podcast number 117, published in September 2020, called Metronomes and Tuning Machines Should Be Banished to Outer Space. You know, we, you know, we have to acknowledge the history of the instrument and the people involved in the education of it. Mm. But as with everything, you know, education also needs to evolve. And my feeling is that, uh, you, you know, there's uh, in, in certainly in the United Kingdom, there is uh, you know, great admiration and following for the French school of flute playing. And by that, I mean sort of Tafnel and Gobert through to Marcel Moyes and Jean-Pierre Rampal. Yep. And there is, you know, there, absolute respect. There's some amazing material there. But, you know, all those people that I've mentioned are now deceased and the world has continued to evolve. But if we're constantly looking backwards for inspiration as to how to do things, I think we're missing out on grasping the moment ourselves. Um, and so I'm constantly looking for ways of expressing this. And in fact, that's really why the 28-day warm-up book came up in the first place is because there were numerous things that I couldn't do on the instrument and I couldn't work out why. Um, and uh, it was as a result of writing those exercises that, uh, you know, I, as an example, the, the opening page of the Poulenc Flute Sonata, everyone's really comfortable going, yeah, that's, that's lovely. What a lovely tune, Mr. Poulenc. Thank you very much for writing that for us. Towards the bottom of the page, you get... And of course... No one's actually told us that your fourth and fifth fingers in both hands on the flute are effectively the property of Satan. <laughs> and he sent, he sent those fingers to completely sabotage your flute playing. Now, you know, we can do, we can do all sorts of exercises. You know, I, I say to people, I ask people, how do you get independence in your fingers, in your hands? And they say, ah, I practice Tafnel and Gobert EJ1, the very first exercise book. But that isn't an exercise for the fingers. That's an exercise in playing notes evenly. 
Um, the only way we're going to exercise the fingers, because the muscles in the hand that close are stronger than the muscles that open, we have to exercise the fingers in both directions. And the only way we're going to do that is with a gently repeating movement. Um, and you can do that in triplets or duplets, it doesn't matter. But we've got to go through that process to give the fingers the chance to develop the muscle strength. I learn so much from teaching and you know it's, it's when, when I'm giving a class I mean I, I'm, I'm sort of um, uh, I can almost quote Liberace on this where you know when he came he used to come to London and play the Albert Hall and he, it was completely sold out for seven nights and he'd get up at the end and say oh thank you everyone you're so kind to me and when I come over here you're so warm and you're so generous and sometimes you know I just wonder how on earth can I take the money <laughs> but I always but I always do <laughs> Um, so, I, you know, I, I, I go and give a class and as soon as someone gets up and I can see, you know, I suppose in a sense, you know, because of my own frustrations with myself, I can see where they're perhaps putting too much tension or creating bottlenecks for themselves. You know, articulation, that's another thing, you know, we, that we use our language as the means of articulating into the flute, which is a great idea up to a point, because it actually doesn't serve the music we're playing, unless that music tends to be quite violent. In the English language, in the English language, we use the tongue in an incredibly violent way. Um, you know, and we also ricochet the, the tongue off the roof of the mouth. And, and that's not good for you know, playing a, a slow melody in a Brahms symphony, for example. So we, we have to be versatile. We have to find ways to do it. There are all sorts of mysteries. Um, the, the fact that I'm still doing it at the age that I am now is testament to the fact that it isn't easy, um, that it's, it's all consuming. And, uh, you, you know, there's always something new to discover and something to learn. And, you know, I feel incredibly grateful uh, for that. And the, the idea of you know, retiring is completely alien to me. <laughs> Do you know, what I really like is you give the due regards and respect for the history of the flute. But like art, art hasn't stayed in the Renaissance, has it? Or hasn't no. stayed in Impressionism. It has moved on. And we have this, yeah. you know, we can appreciate the various stages. It's the stage now where graffiti is and, you know, a Banksy pops up somewhere and everybody's lauding it. And I like the yeah. fact that you say the flute should almost, well, should be like this, should be evolving because the nature of the player and the person coming into it is also evolving. Yeah, well, you know, it's sort of, I, 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 you know, I'm, I know, I, I think I've reached that stage of life now where I know that I can't please everyone and I'm not <laughs> bothered about that. Um, but, you know, there, there, are, there are various things that have taken place, in my opinion, that have done a, a lot of damage to both music and to musicians. And there are two items that immediately spring to mind that if I ruled the world of music, perish the thought, I would have sent into outer space. The first is a metronome <laughs> and the second is a tuning machine really because i i you know of course you know if you're if you're if if you're trying to teach 
a young person to play in time, of course, a metronome is very valid. But, you know, I think metronomes, uh, you know, they're there to serve a particular purpose, but then, you know, we as human beings should develop the skill to be able to play in time. And in the same way, we should develop our hearing and our ears to be able to play in tune. Uh, there's no such thing as an in-tune flute. It's the player that has to be in tune because what they've got in their hands, there are so many variables that they've got to have, they themselves have got to have the ability to be able to control those variables. It's not the instrument that's going to control them. The, the instrument is actually pretty basic, but it's up to the individual to actually to, to use their ears. Um, so yes, I don't make myself very popular when I say I'd have tuning machines and metronomes banished to the to the to the outer kingdoms. I can't imagine Mozart, you know, on top of his piano had a metronome. <laughs> I don't think he was focusing on, now, shall I play in time today? He was actually focusing on, what shall I say today? And and this is the other thing that I think we, we tend to get too um, sort of uh, embroiled in the things which are secondary rather than primary. And I think the other thing that's that as I'm getting older that interests me is that I want to try and provide, and this is this is where Simply Flute comes into it, I want to try and provide a platform for people to develop their skills on the instrument, but primarily through music rather than technique for the sake of technique. And I feel that so much that has gone on in the past has been focused purely on technique in what I consider to be a very, very uninteresting way, just by sort of repeating things ad nauseam, but they don't go anywhere. And surely, if we're involved in music, we need to actually be going on some kind of a journey because the, the, you know, the end result is we've got to stand up and take other people on a journey. And if we're not actually doing that within our practice, then there's something lacking and there's something that we're not training for. Um, and I always liken this, you know, you know act, that there's no such thing as an actor not acting. Even when they're off the stage, they're still acting. Uh, you, you know, we, 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 there's an element of that that we've got to be involved in as well. I remember in uh, a flute course that we did a few years ago, well, one at Stratford, not Stratford, um, one at Harrogate Pool. And you yeah, talk- one, of the, one of the very few, one of the very few you bothered to turn up for. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, no, you're a hard worker. <laughs> um, <laughs> I remember you you were talking to people about music, and you were tell- saying that each piece that you play is a story, and you were right. you're, you're unpicking in this beautiful way the fact that every note is a word. And that you to communicate right. to the audience in a way that isn't a technical exercise to bring them into this narrative, each note has to be a word. And you are creating this story about a piece of music. And that goes back right. with what you're saying then. 
Well, uh, Jim, this this kind of, you know, there's going to be many different reasons why this kicked off. But I think the, the, the thing that interests me, interests me most about this is that many, many years ago, and, and there will be people listening who won't know the name, but the jazz pianist Oscar Peterson, was, um, he came over to London and he did some uh, sort of half hour, 40 minute shows for the BBC. And I happened to know the floor manager of the studio and I got into all of these and um, he had he would have a guest with him. Um, uh, he had Count Basie with him one day. So many years ago, I, I had the chance of meeting Count Basie. Um, but uh, at the end of the each of these uh, you know, sessions where he'd been playing and interviewing one of the greats from jazz, um, there was uh, questions from the audience, and someone said to him at the end, oh, uh, Mr. Peterson, you, you must have played my funny Valentine thousands of times. Um, so you know, what goes through your mind when someone requests that you play my funny, my funny Valentine yet again? And he said, do you know, it's terribly simple. I say to myself, okay, what can I do with this piece today? That I've never done before. Yes, and and I think that that is such an important thing. Now, you, we, we, you know, I, I doubt that we're going to have the opportunity here to get into particularly lengthy discussion about being nervous, but you know, everyone gets nervous, and everyone has to find their way of dealing with it. But for me, you know, before I go on to a concert and play a concert let's say the the first piece is the foray fantasy mm-hmm. um and i and rather than thinking oh my goodness i'm nervous i am actually saying to myself okay yes i've played this many times but what can i do with this piece today that's i you know might even surprise myself what what, what route can i take that isn't so, you know, it isn't the way I've always done it. So that's exactly it. You know, you know, it might help people if they get nervous before they walk onto the stage just to be focusing on that because I've found that completely takes my mind off being nervous. And and again, you know, you're, you can focus on what you're doing rather than worrying about what people are thinking. What, I've, what I find very irritating is when I, um, I hear... Uh, flute players you know, talk about a piece, let's say the Foray Fantasy, oh, no, it's so boring, that piece. Well, no, you've made it boring because actually it's, it's phenomenally good music for our instruments and we're, we're not blessed with, you know, the kind of repertoire that string players and pianists get. Um, so, uh, you know, it's our job to actually make whatever music is uh, is in front of us. It's our job to bring it to life at that moment. And people say, you know, oh, who's who's your favourite composer? And I go, well, the one I'm playing at the moment. <laughs> it's that, you know. I, and uh, you 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 have to be completely engaged and involved, um, uh, you know, at all times. Always wonderful to catch up with Paul. In podcast number 131 from October 2020, I spoke with the brilliant composer and flute player Carla Reese in a podcast titled We Need to Reframe What a Mistake Actually Is. It's always just been it's a curiosity. It's, it, I can't, I'm interested in sound. I'm interested in how far you can, what you can do with things, but it's not self-consciously innovative. It sounds it's very theoretical, playful. but you are such a musical person. 
even though the theory and the, and the analytics, <laughs> uh, but yeah. you take that aside, you'd think that was be that was quite sort of cold the way you talk about the the, the, the layering of everything. But everything you do is really, really musical. I think I'm quite instinctive. I think I've always been quite instinctive. I mean, I hear music in lines. So actually, I mean, I have you know, obviously, I've studied music. I understand about harmony. I teach it. You know, I, I know how it all works. But for me, it's much more about instinct. It's much more, I mean, you know, from being a flute player in an orchestra, you hear all the lines around you. And what always fascinated me was how the lines come together and each line's got different sort of properties and colors and textures and they combine to create something new and i think that's really where i come from with all the sound that i do it's about how you combine different strands of material so i'm very i, I think i'm a horizontal composer you know lots of composers think in terms of vertical mm. you know harmonic planning and structures and that kind of thing and I, i'm not like that i'm much more instinctive um and i love counterpoint that's that's kind of my big fascination this, this idea of the lines coming together and creating something um i also love dissonance and minor keys and dark things <laughs> musically um but it's all you know they all i think they all have something in common which is this kind of interesting color i find that really fascinating and so all of the explorations that i do are more about finding new colors or new sounds or but but also how you can integrate them with other things and how you can learn from history as well. I'm quite fascinated by that connection, that it's not just, you know, nothing new happens in isolation. It's always connected with what's come before. And it might not be linear, it might jump different, you know, different bits of music history might connect in different ways, but we come from this tradition and it's all, yeah, it's all about extending that and, and making stuff that's relevant for now, because, you know, we have a problem with contemporary music that it's very difficult to reach a mainstream audience course um because it's not part of our culture anymore and that's that's quite a big problem because you know in every other art form contemporary culture is quite an important thing but mm. somehow in music it's gone a bit wrong dissonance dissonance in life we all experience dissonance every single day in various different formats it's just sometimes we shy away with it with music yeah I think the thing for me about dissonance, I had a kind of, I don't know, a bit of a eureka moment as a student. Um, I think I've talked about this before, but I was trying to compose atonal music because that was what I was being taught to do. Um, and I found it really hard. Um, I think I had a sense that it didn't really, well, it didn't make any sense to me. It wasn't my language, but it was kind of part of the process that you have to go through as a composer is understanding that you know, yes, we can write music that's pastiche from 200 years ago, but what's the point? Because it's it was done very well then. Um, and it can be done very well now as well. But if you're going to have an instinctive kind of natural voice, it's got to be bringing in all sorts of different things. Um, so I was writing exclusively atonal music and it really, I found it really difficult. Um, but the, the idea that really struck with me was this idea that you can have essentially different levels of dissonance in every interval. So you've got everything from, you know, unison or an octave um, to consonant intervals. You've got major thirds, minor thirds, they're consonant, but they're slightly different from each other. And then as you work through the different intervals, they've got a different level of tension built up within them. 
So actually what you can do when you're composing is play with these different degrees of tension. So you, within a very complex piece of music, you can still have this idea of tension and release, even if you don't have a tonal centre. And that for me was like a light bulb moment because it's kind of like, yeah, that's what we're playing with. That's where things get interesting and emotional is, is this idea of tension and how we play with that. So that doesn't mean that to be kind of innovative, you have to write music that's so complex, nobody can understand it. I mean, there's a place for that music, but it's about just understanding that there are so many different languages that we could be writing in, that it doesn't have to just be major or minor. It could be something that's based on a tonality, but it's extending it in different ways, or it's microtonal, or it's based on fourths, or it could be anything, it doesn't matter, but we have all this open to us. And if you understand this this concept of tension, then you've got a framework that you can actually put with more or less any system. I love that that uh, the use of the word tension, because if we're feeling tense, you know, there, there's feelings, there's noises, there's voices, all fighting for that, that one attention, and it's not it's not a perfect sound, it's not a perfect melody. What's going on when you're feeling tense? When the muscles are tense, the the fibers everywhere are working against each other, and I love that analogy that it's tension, because as you say, you can release tension, and when you release tension, you get that wow. Yeah, yeah, totally. And it's that playing with that. Yeah, I think I've got it now, my dear. It's taken me a long time. I, mean, I got it. <laughs> but you can't have that feeling of kind of like, oh yeah, everything's okay now, without that no. other side of it. So if, if, for example, you listen to a piece of, you know, extremely consonant music that was always consonant, mm -hmm. in the end it would become, for me, that would become quite stressful because I'd need that kind of, I'd need it to stop. It would be too much of a kind of the same thing. Um, I mean, there are contexts where that can work very well um, and it creates a new tension of its own. So it's the, the tension is not from the dissonance necessarily. It's how you use the intervals. But also life itself isn't dissonant you know it's not full of beauty all the time and yeah. uh, I think with what you do you bring a realism with music which is more 21st century life as it is which is very much fast moving it's very much uh, social media based which creates its own dissonance in yeah. what you're seeing and what you're feeling and what you're doing and what you become addicted to yeah for sure and I think the other thing, the other side of it is that I've been playing around a lot recently with very quiet music. Um, I played quite a lot of Feldman um, relatively recently, did some recordings. Um, Feldman's music is amazing because it's, you know, the loudest dynamic is pianissimo and the pieces might be, or one of the pieces I played for flute and piano was um, three and a half hours long. Um, <laughs> and, you know, right at the end where you're kind of about to die, you, you have to play some top register harmonics you know three p's it, it's a massive physical stamina trial but it's amazing music and it's really you get really it's a bit like meditation you get really into the zone and it's it takes you somewhere different um and this kind of idea that i mean this works really well with low flutes but the idea that there's this kind of middle zone between sound and silence and we're in you know ultimately quite a shouty world there's a lot of noise around us all the time and so actually to be able to really focus in and use this music to be very, very quiet and peaceful and just take us to a sort of inner sanctuary in a way. Um, so, I've, I mean, low flutes are fantastic for that. 
because it's such you know there's such a kind of soft tone color in that sort of region air sounds very quiet sounds um there's a huge map potential in there to play with but you have to be very patient because of course the world is moving very quickly around that's just gonna be very unfair carla because we've been chatting for half an hour um do you have a flute by the side of you because uh-huh. uh air sounds quarter tones yeah. um overtones harmonics really uh throw something at you what can you because you very much live in the moment when you're performing you are present as you say it's like meditation you are here now you're conscious of the sounds you're making and without that consciousness of those sounds you're making you couldn't do what you're doing because your brain would be taking you in different directions so the use of these extra sounds what do they bring into your narrative? I think for me, it's all about colour, um, especially with multiphonics. Um, I'm very keen on the very, very soft, quiet, small interval ones. You can get, you know, with multiphonics, there's lots of different variety. There are the ones that are based on the harmonic series, which are, you know, fine. They're kind of really inbuilt into the flute because the flute is so much based on the harmonic series. Um, but there are also some that you can get with very wide intervals that are quite loud. So like this kind of, I'm probably, let me go back a bit. Those kind of things, they're very stable. You've got low note and a high note, relatively strong dynamics, but then you can do some very beautiful soft ones, um, which are really kind of, really help you to get inside the sound. She's playing an alto flute here, by the way. softer and then much more fragile and delicate and I think very beautiful yeah and these kind of sounds I mean for improvising when you're kind of playing with these kind of sounds I mean so for example I might have an improvisation that's just purely based on close multiphonics um that's what I mean about setting parameters um and these sounds need quite a lot of control because you have to have a very stable airstream and the air has to go in exactly the right place but with a bit of practice they become like I mean you know as familiar as playing B A and G um but, but you can play them with the same types of tone colour that you can play B, A, G, and air sounds and other sort of stuff. Um, so if I do, let's say, um, multiphonic from an air sound. So you can even hear in the air that you've actually got two pitches, which is pretty amazing. Um, and of course, when you're amplifying that and using that to process electronics and all kinds of things, good stuff happens. But you don't need to have special flutes to be able to experiment, do you? Not at all. Um, I, I experiment on well, a Baroque flute that I play with as well. Um, actually, that's a really interesting thing because the Baroque flute is almost the opposite of a Kingma system flute in the sense that it's you know, just it's holes. Six holes. <laughs> yeah, six holes and a key. But of course, the first thing I do when I get a Baroque flute is think, well, can we do any multiphonics on it? Oh, that is a lovely yes, sound. Which is, yeah, it's amazing. Um, so that's, you know, this is by no means a special flute in that sense. Um, it's a flute and that's all that matters. It's not about how many keys you've got. Obviously, if you've got more holes to play with, it's, it's about the ventilation. The more holes you've got, the more you can 
you know, you've got different fingering options. Um, so the, the thing about the Baroque flute is it's only got six holes, so you haven't got a hole for each of the semitones, for example. Um, and actually that's one of the things I find really fascinating is actually talking about the contemporary and the tradition is how the chemo system flute links to the Baroque flute, um, which sounds like a crazy idea, but essentially on a Baroque flute, you've only got six holes, so you don't have a hole for each semitone. So the way you would create some of the semitones is by basically changing the fingering of one of the normal notes. So if I take an example, um, well, the first time I played a Baroque flute, somebody said, if you, if you just you know, play the scale, you get a D major scale, so good. All nice. Uncover one hole at a time, D major scale. So I said, right, that's great. So I know how to play F sharp. How do I play F? And they said, well, you have to play F sharp, but you cover an extra hole. So an F is this. So I played an F sharp and I played an F and they sound exactly the same. <laughs> and the reason for that is that an F is essentially an F sharp. Um, but all you're doing is flattening an F sharp as much as you can and then trying to make an F. So you have to control it with the breath, you have to control it with the airstream, and eventually you can get an F, but you have to modify the position. And there are quite a few notes like that on a Baroque flute. So then when you go to the next stage of flute history, you get to the Burm, well, I mean, miss out a few levels, but you get to the Burm system flute that most people play on now. Um, and that's got a hole for each semitone. So we're kind of up a level, which is fantastic. Don't um, so, you know, we've got a hole for each semitone, so that's brilliant. But if you want to play the notes in between, what do you do? And the answer is, so if I, if I do it, um, um, so let's say I wanted to play a quarter tone lower than an E on a normal, let's say it's a closed whole flute, this one isn't, but let's say it was, the only option that I would have would be to play an E and then flatten it as much as possible. So then you put down a few foot joint keys and you go down a quarter tone. It's exactly the same process that you would do on a Baroque flute to make a semitone. But because we've got more holes, we can then reduce the intervals. So then you get to the King System flute, which has a hole for every quarter tone. Um, so then we don't need to do the adjustments that you would have to do. So on a normal flute, you would have to make these adjustments with the air the same way that you would do to play an F natural on a Baroque flute. So it's really fascinating that it's basically the same history and it's the same system, but it's just getting more refined as we go along. But we've got more holes to play with and because we've got more holes, we can do more with it. And I would say the Kingma system, when you get the chance to play, it is so logical. It's frighteningly logical. And even if you're not into extended techniques, it gives you so much more. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, it's about the holes. I mean, everyone calls it a quarter tone flute, which it is, but it's, that's only a little tiny part of what it's about. Um, you know, for example, a Baroque flute isn't equal temperament. I mean, it's hard to actually define what temperament it is, but every single Baroque flute has a slightly different scale. And every single one has some stronger notes, some weaker notes that, you know, some, some flutes will very happily play a top F, some won't. There'll be, you know, various differences between them. Um, and the thing is with all these differences, they've all got their own characters. Um, the interesting thing is when you've got lots of holes on a flute, you can start playing with different fingerings that give you those different characters. So you could potentially use an equal temperament Kigmar system flute to try and mimic a maybe um, 
I don't know what system, well, Just Intonation, I've done that on the alto flute, um, played a piece in Just Intonation. So it's not equal temperament, but it's against a drone, so the tuning has to be absolutely perfect. Um, but because I've got the extra leeway with the extra holes, it means that I've got lots of space to do that. And yes, it's a contemporary piece, but there's no reason why you couldn't use it for rock music or anything. Um, it's, it's not just about playing contemporary techniques. That's just part of what it does. And that's the thing with contemporary techniques. It not only improves your general musicality by heightening awareness of each note, which is so important, and you as a, a, a professor and educator will be trying to get that over to people, is that you're just not playing a blob with a stick on a, on a score. You've got, you're playing, a, each note has a personality, and each note has fine variations of tuning, which you're trying to heighten awareness of. So how can flute players totally begin to explore the flute away from the normal classical music scale and study construct? I think the first thing is be curious. That's really important. And also be a beginner. I think then one of my sort of constant, I mean, I've been talking about this a lot recently in workshops and things, but I think one of my constant things is this reminder to be a beginner. Um, and I'm always reminding myself to be a beginner. So it doesn't, in a way, it doesn't really matter how much you already know. You can still be a beginner. And the thing about being a beginner is you can make mistakes. And the really exciting thing about making mistakes is that you learn so much from them. So, you know, about, I don't know how long ago, eight or nine years ago, I was a complete beginner on the Baroque flute. And now I'm completely in love with it and it's totally changed my life and it's a big part of what I do. Um, but also you can be a beginner with new techniques. You can be a beginner with everything you do and if you approach it with that mindset of a beginner where everything's exciting and you're you know maybe there'll be some frustrations but it's kind of worth sticking with and you push it through so I think one thing about all of these techniques is that they're you know you hear people play I mean somebody like Robert Dick he sounds absolutely phenomenal with all these techniques because they're so ingrained in who he is and there are techniques that he does that I can't do and there are things that I kind of listen to him do think oh, I'd love to be able to do that. And I have this fascination. If I hear people do things I can't do, I want to know how they do it. I'm always somebody who asks why. It drives everybody nuts. It's like, you know, I always want to know why it happens. How it's possible, like what you do. Um, but there's also um, certain things that I find quite interesting is that um, we all have individual bodies that work in a specific way. So some of these techniques involve using the body in different ways from what we're used to. So there's sometimes a mental block that you have to get through. Um, so something like circular breathing, um, you have to be able to get through the mental block of breathing in and out at the same time. Um, there are other kind of slight weird physical things that you have to do sometimes. Um, where if, for example, if I'm teaching someone to do something, they'll say, oh, that feels really weird. And that's, that's a kind of, you know, totally human response that you have to break through sometimes. And it might be something really simple, like if you're playing multiphonics, you have to put your fingers on different keys than the ones that you were taught, of. you know, you, you always use your first finger to play B. Um, it's not the case if you're suddenly playing multiphonics. You might want to move the fingers around, you might use a one finger on multiple keys, you might even press three keys at the same time with one finger. So, you know, there's a little bit of having to be flexible with the brain, which is, you know, can be a bit of a challenge. Um, and I think it's also about exploring, finding your voice, because for me, all these sounds are all additional things that become part of my voice. Um, so improvising is something I think everybody should have a go at at some point. And I know it's terrifying for a lot of people to start with. 
Um, and I would always say the way to start is to do it when nobody can hear you. <laughs> like find a little place where you're on your own, like in the middle of a field somewhere or whatever, but just, and, and literally just start with one note and just explore that one note. Think about how, how can you change that note? Um, what happens if it becomes an air sound? I mean, air sounds are another one, actually, another potential mental blockage at the beginning because mm -hmm. we're so used to this very focused airstream that to have to open that out, it's like, for some people, that's a big leap. Um, so, you know, start play play a note, turn it into an air sound, bring it back again. Then maybe change an articulation. Or, but there's so much you can do even just with one note and then venture out a little bit and come back to that note. So that it's never a sense of... You know, we always have this worry about, you know, what what shall I play? I mean, the number of times someone said, I can't play something. And my first thought is, oh, no, what shall I play? And then I'm completely paralysed. And, you know, I've got lots of pieces in my head and I can improvise. But, that you know, it'd be quite a normal reaction to just sort of be like, oh, what shall I play? I don't know what to play. Um, which is, again, another one of those barriers that we have to leap over. Um, so I think it's worth being comfortable with that and getting used to just sort of pick up a flute and play a few notes. I remember when we last met, Carla, you were saying, we're having, a, we're having a chat over coffee and we were just casually talking about improvisation. And I think you said, but if you play a B, do you really know what a B sounds like? Because there's so many fluctuations of variations of that B that yeah. we don't listen to, we don't pay attention to. And if only we did and we explored that, would our general musicality and our flute playing improve? Yeah, I mean, I think the more critically we can listen, the better. Um, and I think, I mean, that's one thing I get from having played microtones for the last 20 years. The sense of intonation that you get from that is amazing. Now, I always love visiting Dublin. Now, who doesn't? That wonderful city in the beautiful Emerald Isle. And during my last visit there in late 2019, I recorded a podcast in a Dublin cafe with William Dowdle. Bill, to those who know him, Professor of Flute at the Royal Irish Academy of Music there, about probably the most famous solo flute piece of them all, Syrinx. So here's an excerpt of the podcast titled Coffee, Cake, Wine and Syrinx. We've known each other too long. Centuries. <laughs> Hi John Paul, how are you? Well, I'm, I'm fine. We're a year older, a year wiser. No, I'm no wiser. I'm getting younger all the time, mentally. Physically, I'm getting older. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's something about getting old, isn't it? The old bones start to creak and then the, uh, the brain starts to uh, disappear. I, I, never, I never give in to any of that stuff. Huh? No, I deny it completely. I'm not getting older. You just don't use it as an excuse like I do. <laughs> and ask my kids. <laughs> Now, you were telling me a really interesting story earlier about syrinx. Yes. And breathing. And there's just a story about the whole thing on syrinx, which well, I know you're quite passionate about. Yeah, I love syrinx. I think, you know, it's uh, an iconic flute work. It was originally written for Louis Fleury and to be played uh, as part of this play, I think it's Cichet. And the play has long since disappeared, but it had quite a good run in Paris. <clears throat> and all Louis had to do was turn up for three minutes off stage, didn't even have to get dressed up, blow a syrinx and then paid and off back and to the bar. Yeah, so 
he, this is the best gig ever, so he guarded this music jealously. But of course, he wanted a few nights off now and again. He taught it by ear to Moe's teacher, Georges Barrer, who happened to be either a young pro or <clears throat> a very advancing pupil at the time. <clears throat> so Georges Barrer learned, learned it by ear, and then, of course, went to the States, I think in the 1910s or 1915s or whatever, and then was teaching over there. When the Jobert edition arrived, you see, jo, uh, when when Louis passed away, his widow found the music, of course, great, a few bob, you know, yeah. and conducted, uh, contacted <coughs> the publisher Jobert, who said, great, but we can't publish this without bar lines or breath marks, and no one will buy it. Hang on a second, there was no bar lines or breath marks on no, the series? No, 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 just there's nothing. I mean, it's just indications. And um, <coughs> so Jobert got Moïse, to put in bar lines and breath marks, and thereby hangs the tale. So when <coughs> when Barrer first saw Syrinx, he looked at him and said, well, "This is not what I'm used to," and uh, had quite a different couple of diff couple of different breathing suggestions and some very good fingering suggestions. And um, that's the that's the version I use now. Quite simply, I didn't know that story. Oh well, that's. That's what was passed down to me. And, uh, so what about the, <coughs> the uh, key signatures? Well, they're a great pain. <laughs> it's a great pain because, yes, there's a key signature. And you'll be very careful. I've done it out in landscape form. And so the bar, the bar lines are twice as long. So you'll be very careful when you're cancelling accidentals <laughs> along the way. And, uh, so people can find the original copy of the original on your own website? Yep, on williamdowdall.com. And it's absolutely free. You press a button and out it comes. Now, the printing quality now has to be upgraded. So we have to drag it into the 21st century. But you'll see the gist of the, the, the whole thing. And so, some very nice fingerings in there as well for different colors, harmonics and all that stuff. So when you hear <coughs> Syrian, how often do you hear the original played? The way that well, you thought, you think the original I, was played? I think a lot of people played really well. I don't think, and a lot of very good flute players take no note of the take no notion of the bar lines themselves. They, a lot of good players don't make the bar lines brick walls like we shouldn't anyway. So um, it's played generally very well. It's just a few little touches. If you have a look, it even makes sense musically as some of the other breath marks. And my advice to all young flute players is learn to play the piccolo properly, not like me. <laughs> uh, in fact, my piccolo playing is so bad, our wind quintet once hid my piccolo before a concert. Seriously. And uh, so it's very important for young players to learn to play the piccolo properly because your first gig in an orchestra is most likely going to be second or third flute and piccolo. No one's going to waltz in first flute. Do you know, just, do you know going, back, going back a bit, you're just two steps re removed from Barrera, aren't you? Just two steps, yes. Wow. Yeah. yeah. It's two generations. It's funny because Barrera was quite old when he taught Mo, and Mo was quite old when he taught me. And I'm not quite old. <laughs> no, no, you've still got a great, you've got a great mop of hair on there. Yeah, but it's white now. Yeah, so is mine. That's all right. And I've got Dis a beard. That's all right. Distinguished. I, I gave up shaving the day I got married. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> so what single piece of advice, if you could give to a flute player that could be listening that is not sure of where they can go? There's only so many orchestral jobs, isn't there? Mm. I think the thing now is diversity. Learn to play all of your instruments really well. When I say all of your instruments, I don't mean sax or anything else. Learn to play your flute, your piccolo, your alto flute, even your bass flute really well. 
there are other forms of music get into improvisation. I think the day of people just being in orchestras is, is waning. I think there's a lot more out there. Get involved in contemporary music. I've had wonderful times in contemporary music. The exploration. And, you know, sometimes we might play music that's not to our liking. But so what? Look at, look, look at some of the, the amount of rubbish that was written in the 19th century. I mean, how many symphonies did uh, Pierre Ney write? Don't know. Who cares? <laughs> And many did Beethoven write nine, but I think Pierre and I or someone wrote ten times that amount. So there was always this, you know, you know this rubbish, and there's two, two sorts of music, good music and bad music, no matter what genre it is, and learn to play in different genres as well. And don't be stuck up like me being so-called classical. I mean, my first recording as a teenager, really sad, Mendelssohn Symphony Number no. 4 with the Cleveland Orchestra, that's my first recording when I was 14 or 15. Hmm? Well, that's not bad, is it? Fourteen yeah. or fifteen? Yeah, but you know, I, I think the answer is diversity. And my own, my own, the, all the daughters play. They have a very, very, very life. I mean, daughter Lisa plays a lot between contemporary music and crash ensemble, and then Irish baroque orchestra. So there's a lot of them. The same with Jenny and and Aoife. They're always doing different genres of music. And you love teaching. And oh, absolutely. And I think that is one area people think, oh, if I can't do it, I'll have to teach. Oh, Why well, flip no. it around? And like you do, you're so passionate about yeah. teaching. Well, I think it's also important to have a playing, playing life as well. And I think there was a period where I, I didn't teach, and it was in my 30s, and I went through a sort of a phase, uh, well, I was very busy with a young family, we'd started off the shop, and I was also in the process of sort of relearning what I was doing. And in fact, it's very funny, it actually came back to square one while I was taught in the first place. I just stopped messing around. Yeah. And it, it worked. You know, so. And I think that what a great way to finish. Stop messing around, mm. find out what it is that you want to do. Yeah. If you really are passionate about instruments, as you say, learn to play it properly, be passionate, be emotional with it, have it as your lover. Because let's face it, you you spend more time with this tube than you do with your wife, girlfriend, boyfriend. Jesus, that's frightening. You're it right, is so, isn't it? You spend more time <laughs> with it. I always say to my, my students, particularly the young ones, there is only one true mistake you can make, and that's not to make music. Thank you once again to Paul, Carla, and Bill, and to you for listening this week. We love to get your feedback, so please continue to send any ideas for future Talking Flutes pods to flutepodcasts at gmail.com. Next week, Claire is up with the final lookback pod before we start our new season of podcasts on the 13th of September. In next week's pod, Claire looks at the Hamilton Hardy fantasy, Donizetti Sonata in C, and Volse Caprice by Daniel Wood. So until then, wishing you a wonderful musical week ahead and may your flute playing bring you great joy. Goodbye. Talking Flutes and Talking Flutes Extra are podcast productions by the Trevor James Flute Company. For more information, visit trevorjamesflutes.com.